Father, we are grateful for your goodness to each one of us. You've shown us many mercies. You've shown us the great mercy of bringing us to new life in your Son. And compared to that, any hardships just don't compare. Thank you that we have the sure hope of heaven, the promise that you will accept us into your presence at the end of our lives, that one day you will resurrect us and that we will spend eternity with you. And yet we need your help for every challenge that we face moment by moment, day by day. Tonight, please grant that we may have fresh insight into your word, grant that your spirit would be our teacher, build us up, Father, that we may be more useful and more fit for your service. We ask this through your Son. Amen. Okay. This is our last week in the first ten weeks of our CBCBI. What we're going to do tonight is devote both hours to hermeneutics. Because last week we finished the material for Theology 1. And there's going to be a lot of opportunity for interaction and for working on the scriptures together tonight. So I hope you'll enjoy that. We're going to be looking at allegories, predictive prophecy, and the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament tonight. Okay. Originally, we were going to talk about allegories right after we talked about parables because in some ways they are similar. But because of time, we didn't. So we're going to pick that topic up now. The question is, what is an allegory and how does it differ from a parable? Well, a parable can be defined as an extended simile. A simile, if you look at that word, it looks like similar, doesn't it? In a parable, you say that this thing is like that. The Lord will generally state a principle, and then he'll give a parable, which is a short story, which illustrates that principle. And as we said when we looked at parables, generally, a parable illustrates one idea. It doesn't have a whole lot of ideas in it. It's a simple story that illustrates a single idea. Well, an allegory is an extended metaphor. Okay, But unlike a parable, allegories intertwine the story and the meaning. Allegories express multiple meanings through the details, whereas parables generally illustrate single truths. You'll see this when we look at a couple of allegories. Allegories have many details which carry meaning, unlike parables. And allegories often picture fantastic or impossible situations while parables have ordinary settings in real life. For example, one of the allegories in the Old Testament is the story about a thistle getting into an argument with a pine tree. Okay? Thistles and pine trees don't get into arguments, do they? It's a, it's a fantastic or impossible situation. But it still communicates something. It's, it's a way of communicating and uh, parables, on the other hand, are, are always based in ordinary settings from regular life. You'll see how this works out. Now, very important statement. It's proper to interpret an allegory as an allegory. 
it's not proper to interpret texts that aren't allegories as if they were allegories. You remember the basic rule of literal interpretation or literary interpretation? The most important thing is always context. Okay? And secondly, you need to interpret each genre in the way that's appropriate to that genre. Okay? When you look at a parable, you know that a parable isn't telling you a true story. It's an illustration of a principle from a made-up story. Okay? You know that a proverb needs to be interpreted the way proverbs are interpret interpreted. Proverbs tell you what? Yeah, proverbs express wisdom. They express general truths, but not necessarily absolute truths. Are there exceptions to the statements made in, in parables? Sure. Uh, not parables, proverbs. Yes, there are. Okay? Proverbs express generally true things. Now, when you go to a theological section of one of Paul's epistles, and he says, there is no one righteous, not one, do you interpret that like you would interpret a proverb? No. That's an absolute statement, right? So the general principle of literal interpretation is that you need to interpret each genre according to the rules that are appropriate for that genre. Andrew? Would you say that in general it's kind of a good rule to assume things are literal and then go from there? Because if you assume something is literal and it happens to be... Well, I'm saying that everything in the Bible is literal in the sense that you should interpret it according to the kind of literature that it is. Okay? Now, we, we do use the word literal in a different sense where we would say metaphors aren't literal. Like if I say, you know, it's so cold in here, there are icicles on my nose. Well... That's not literally true in the wooden literal sense, but it's literally true in the sense that it's a metaphor that expresses the fact that I'm really cold. Right, and with that literal, if you mix up literal and figurative, then you might take something that sounded kind of silly and you usually find it out. But if you take everything as figurative, then you could lose real truths that are hidden there because okay. it's easier to confuse yes. one than the other. You, sh you should always start on the end of the spectrum where you treat things in a wooden literal sense and only move in the other direction if the kind of writing that you're looking at suggests that you move in the other direction. Good. Okay. Allegories are not very common in Scripture. There aren't a lot of them. But where they, where they appear, they're not difficult to interpret if we pay attention to the context. Now let's look at some of these. Okay. Go to Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4, and read them. Do you think this is an allegory? 
slide. Why is this an allegory? The end. Okay, good. Good. All right, the Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say the Lord is like my shepherd. Okay? Excellent. What else? What's different between parables and allegories as far as the importance of details? Andrew? Well, in parables, you just kind of look at a general flow or meaning. Mm -hmm. In an allegory, you look at each individual detail and then move it over and apply things side by side. Show me some details in here that carry meaning. He may say lie down in green pastures and he gives you a calm place that you need to rest. Okay. you, You look at it side by side with what it's saying and then what you need to apply it to instead of just looking at the general flow. Okay, there's there's one one thing that this this parable or this allegory is teaching, okay? When it says well first of all, what is the allegory picturing? Sheep and a shepherd. Okay, a bunch of sheep and a shepherd. What is it talking about? Lori? Well, it, it, it does talk about peace, but through the sheep and the shepherd, who is it talking about? Maybe I should say who? God and his people. Okay? It's picturing God as a shepherd and God's people as sheep. Okay? But then it goes on. Right? Andrew pointed out one thing there. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. It pictures how the Lord gives believers rest or peace, okay? Um, He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Now, in order to understand what these things are saying, you need to think about the picture that the allegory is giving you. Okay? What does a shepherd do with a sheep? What's his job? Okay, he takes care of them. How does he take care of them? Okay, he protects them from danger. Do you see that in this passage? Where do you see protection from danger? Okay, he has rod and his staff. I will fear no evil. Okay? The sheep know that the shepherd is there to protect them. What else does the shepherd do? Okay. How does he feed and water them? Okay, he guides them to... the water and the grass, right? He takes them where there's food and water, okay? Now, does the Lord Jesus take us where there's food and, you know, do we eat grass? Do we drink out of streams? Is he beating us around the head with a rod and a staff to make sure we go in the right place? Literally? (laughs) Not literally. None of us have cane marks on the back of our heads. See how you look at this and you almost don't need to think about it, right? The picture is clear. You understand that a comparison is being made between a shepherd and his sheep and the Lord and us and the way the shepherd provides for, guides, protects, comforts the sheep and the way the Lord does those things for us. Now, the reason this is an allegory is because there are a lot of details in here 
that are expressed and carried out. It's not just God takes care of you. It's that God takes care of you in these ways. Okay? There's a lot of detail in there. None of us have any trouble understanding this, right? Very straightforward. You know why we don't have trouble understanding it? Because it, it's, it's a well-known way of communication. It's a genre that we're familiar with. How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory from beginning to end. And it's not hard to understand. Is there really any place called the Slough of Despond? <laughs> you know, a swamp where if your feet get in it, you, you, you get depressed? Not really. And is, and is he talking about literal swamps? No. What's he talking about, John? Yeah, he's talking about the kind of circumstances that would cause you despair and, and how you need to look to the Lord for help to get out of it. Things like that. I, I don't remember all the details of it. Okay, let's look at another one. There's another one like the, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Would that sure. Be kind of like the lion, allegory? the witch, and the wardrobe is definitely an allegory. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, we've got lots of them in our literature. Okay, let's look at Proverbs 5, verses 15 to 20. I can't remember what this is. Ah, yes, this is a good one. Let me read this. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Now, if I stopped right there and you didn't look at the context... You might think this was about irrigation. Okay, but let's go on. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving doe and a graceful deer, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and embraced in the arms of a seductress? Now, what part of this is an allegory. The first three verses. Yeah. It's the first three or two and a half verses. Yeah, first first three and a half verses, right? Fifteen through the first part of verse eighteen. What is the allegory what what is pictured in the allegory? What do you actually see? What is he talking about on the surface? Talking about water, okay? You know, we're used to turning on a faucet. But in the ancient world, they didn't have faucets. You had to find clear water. And, you know, sheep don't like running water, but human beings don't like anything but running water because running water is generally much purer because the process of bubbling and aerating kills bacteria. Okay? So a wise person wants to drink out of a well or a cistern where the water is pure. And when he says, should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street. Well, it sounds like he's saying, don't get a leak in your cistern because the water will just run down the street and get muddy. What's he really saying? 
try to be delicate when you express this. Okay. Don't let other man, men have sex with your wife and don't have sex with women who aren't your wife. Now, think about the image of this nice, clean water running down the street. What does it produce? What happens when clean water runs down? It produces mud. Okay? Mud is what? It's dirty. It's yucky. You don't want it. You don't want to drink it. Okay? Well, in the picture that's being given in the simile, what is drinking? What does drinking represent? Okay? It actually represents something. Remember, in an, in an allegory, you've got a surface story. The surface story is this is about water and a source of water and what you drink. The picture below the surface is what? It's about... Bob? It's about love and marriage. Be more blunt. It's about it's about sex and sexual purity. Okay, what's 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 mud in the streets? It's immorality. Okay, you can carry it a little further if you want to. All right, what's the likelihood if if you are involved with another man's wife or you are drinking from somebody else's well? You may be involved with prostitutes. You may get involved in venereal disease. All kinds of unpleasant things can happen. Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Now that obviously means what? This is addressed to men, by the way, if you look at the context. What's he saying? Let the stream... Exactly. Exactly. That's what he's saying. It's a call to sexual purity, and it's motivated by the idea that just as a sexual relationship between a faithful husband and a faithful wife is refreshing and fulfilling and clean, relationships that cross the barriers of marriage covenants or that involve people who aren't married to each other are harmful and dirty and something you don't want to be involved with. Now, by putting this in the form of an allegory, the guy who wrote Proverbs was able to say something very delicate in a very unoffensive way. Now, of course, I've done everything I can to make it as offensive as possible. <laughs> That's my job. Okay. Um, then, in the middle of verse 18, he gives us a hint in interpreting. Okay? When he says, Rejoice with the wife of your youth, and goes on, he tells you what the allegory is about, doesn't he? And by the way, it doesn't say, Rejoice with your young wife. It says, rejoice with the wife of your youth, <laughs> meaning the one that you got when you were young, who happens to be getting old now. And, and at the end, he gives us a negative illustration. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and embraced in the arms of a seductress? 
There's no good reason why he should. Why shouldn't the son be enraptured by an immoral woman and embraced in the arms of a seductress? According to what he just said, why shouldn't you do that? It's dirty, okay? In, in, the, in the terms pictured in the allegory, it's dirty, it's muddy, it's impure, it's unsatisfying. You know, if you drink water that's running in the streets, what's probably going to happen to you? You're going to get sick, okay? I don't think it's going too far to suggest that the possibility of physical illness from immoral sex is at least alluded to here. Pop. What's that? Typically water running in the streets back then was sewage water. Good. Good. Yeah. Sewage water. Not good stuff. Okay? See, this isn't hard, is it? And, and you know, what do you see here? You see that there's, you know, when Solomon wrote this, this, there's literary genius here, isn't there? You know, that he can express this. You, what, what's great about this is you can read this with the possible exception of verse 19, to a wide audience. And the people who should understand what it's saying will get it, and the people who don't need to know what it's saying, it'll pass right over their heads. Okay? That's one of the neat things about allegories. Okay, turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Take a look at that one. verses 1 through does, he gives us a very good clue to interpret it at the end. Okay, that helps a lot. But what, what, is, what is the picture on the surface here? What do you see when you read the allegory before you start interpreting it? Okay, you see, you see a guy who buys a vineyard, tends it well, expecting good crops, and what does he get? He gets rotten grapes, weeds, you know, the whole works. Bad stuff. Okay? Um, 
let's identify. We've got we've got a vine dresser and we got a vineyard. That's the surface picture, okay? What is it talking about? Okay? Israel and and God. It's talking about Israel and God, which is which? Okay. And, and we're told that at the end, aren't we? You probably could have guessed it even if it wasn't told to you. Now, think about the process expressed in those first two verses. He has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He put a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, there's a whole lot of detail expressed in there if you stop and think about it. Okay? What's the very fruitful hill? The promised land. Good. Okay. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. What's that? Yeah, it's the conquest, isn't it? It's the process by which God cast out the people who were in the land and prepared it so the Israelites could move in. All right? He planted it with the choicest vine. What's the choicest vine? It's the people of Israel. All right? He built a tower in its midst. What do you think that is? It's probably Jerusalem in the temple. He made a wine press in it and he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, I'm not sure what to call the wine press. Um, yeah, possibly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. But when it says he expected it to bring forth good grapes and it brought forth wild grapes, what's he expressing? Well, what, what would the good grapes have represented? Okay. Obedience. Clay, you said something? Faithful. Finish. Faithful what? Faithful behavior? Okay, but it's an adjective. You have to give me something that it describes. Okay. What what are the what are the good grapes? I'm just picking on you, Clay, but that's my job. All right, the, the good grapes could be obedient acts. Okay, I thought you were going in a direction that that I think is interesting to go. How about the idea that it's supposed to bring forth succeeding generations of people who are going to follow God? I might be making something up. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. I actually wanted you to notice that. Okay. What did you just do? You just corrected an idea that I injected that probably wasn't very good, right? Okay. Do you see what he did? I threw out an idea, and it's Brooke, right? Brooks. Okay. Brooks said, mm, I'm not sure that idea fits. 
the evidence of the passage. He looked down at verse 7 and said, no, it doesn't seem to be talking about people. It seems to be talking about behaviors of people. All right? Now, let's look at verse 5. Okay, verses 3 and 4 are pretty clear. What about verse 5? Now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. I shall break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. What is that picturing? Okay, the curses of what? All right. What form the, the covenant that God made with the Israelites, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, said that the, if the Israelites didn't walk faithfully with him, he would do what? Okay, he'd make the land desolate. He'd turn off the faucet in the heavens. He would cause, okay, he'd cause invasion. All right? Now, what do you see there? I will take away its hedge. What's the hedge? Okay, take away its protection. Good. What's that? The walls. Yeah, because the walls of Jerusalem and the other cities got broken down by the foreigners, right? It shall be burned. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. Trampling down is what happens when the foreign armies go through, right? I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. Lord. Leslie? Question. No, I, well, in, uh, in my Bible, at the top of this, it says parable of the vineyard, not allegory of the vineyard. Sure. Okay. Well, that, that's easy to explain. Okay? The term parable is used in a non-technical sense to include both parables and allegories. Okay? Uh, uh, parables and allegories are very similar in many ways, but allegories contain more detail, you know, and they, they go into the sort of fantastic range. I mean, people are not plants and the Lord is not a vine dresser. But but there are enough similar similarities that you will see books that call allegories parables. Yeah. Well, that's just a heading that the guys who published the Bible put in. That's a good question. Okay. Um, when he says it shall not be pruned or dug, what is he saying? Okay, it, he, God is saying, I'm not going to take care of it. I'm going to let it take its, take its knocks. All right, how about there shall come up briars and thorns? Yeah, it, it, this might be a prediction of the arising of the Samaritans. Okay, what where did the Samaritans come from? In 722 B.C.? The Assyrians came in and they conquered the northern kingdom and they took the people out and scattered them all over their empire. And then they took people from the other parts of the empire and they imported them into the northern kingdom. And those people intermarried with the few Jews who were left and that's where the Samaritans came from. And as far as the Jews, when they later returned to the land were concerned, those people were what? They weren't like us. They're weeds. Were the same were the Samaritans the same people that they threw out when they threw out the children and their wives that they pushed from other uh, 
Um, in which incident are you talking about? Are you talking about in Nehemiah? Uh, I, yes. Okay. Um, it's possible. It's possible. In the they repented, but they threw them all out with their children. Yeah. I, I think that's in, it's either in Nehemiah or Ezra. I think it's in Nehemiah. Um, there were two incidents where the Israelites intermarried with, with non-Jews. Yeah. That probably included Samaritans. Um, the term Samaritan had not started to be used by that time, as far as I know. But the, the Israelites had intermarried with non-Israelites, and it might have included them. Okay, I wish I could give you a more certain answer, but I can't. Tom, were you going to say something? Okay. Um... You know, verse 7 really lays it out for you. But it's really quite interesting if you look at this allegory and think of the history of Israel. You can see that there are lots and lots of details in here, aren't there? It doesn't just illustrate one point. I mean, you've, you've got the conquest, you've got the settling of the land, you've got the building of Jerusalem, you've got the presence of the temple... You've got the outworking of the curses of the covenants. You know, there's a whole lot of detail there. You may even have a reference to the Samaritans. I'm not sure that's there. But that's way more detail than you see in a parable, right? And it's not a parable. Because in this thing, the details represent something other than the surface picture. It's not simply illustrating a principle. It's giving you facts through details that represent other things. Can you see how it's different than a parable? Okay. Let's look at another one. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 17. Eleven to seventeen. What do you see there? What's the surface picture? A soldier dressed in armor, preparing for battle. Right. Um. Is that really what it's talking about? What's it talking about? Okay, it's talking about a well-equipped Christian, Lori. Okay, it's talking about spiritual warfare. Relates the subject of spiritual warfare to the picture that's on the surface. The picture on the surface is of a, 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 a soldier prepared to fight in the physical realm. Okay? So... What it's really talking about is, come on, okay, being prepared for battle in the spiritual realm, right? There's a very strong correspondence. Now, why does the writer 
illustrate something that is spiritual by something that is physical. We can relate to it. Okay, good. So we can relate to it. What else? Okay, to show us the reality of, of spiritual warfare. Excellent. Why do we need to be shown the reality of spiritual warfare? What is it about? It's not physical. We can't see it. Okay, there's the key. You can't see it, right? Can't something. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. You can't smell it. It's not tangible. Good. But is it real? Yes. It is real. Okay? So what he's done is he's given us an allegory picturing something that we know, that we know well, and he gives us corresponding parts, right? We've got, we've got, let's see, the general thing is armor. Gird your waist with truth. Okay? We could go through the details of this, you know, and talk about the way a Roman soldier prepared himself the belt that he put around his middle was very important. Okay, It not only held his clothes together, it gave him a place to hang his armor. And if any of you are weightlifters, you know, you put a belt around your middle, right? It actually makes you stronger because it allows you to exert your effort without harming your abdominal muscles. Okay? Um, put on the breastplate of righteousness. What's the breastplate of righteousness? What does a breastplate do? Protect. It protects you. Okay? Righteousness is a protection in spiritual warfare. Because if you have unconfessed sin, that cuts you off from God's help for a time, doesn't it? Doesn't the scripture say, basically, that you need to be walking in fellowship with God to expect your prayers to be answered and expect God to be listening? Okay? So there is a sense in which the illustration of a breastplate shows you the importance of righteousness in spiritual warfare. Having shod your feet, feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, most people think the idea here is that having the gospel, you can go and tell people about it. Because you've already got the gospel, right? But other people need to hear it. And, and you can go on and on and on, all right? But, again, what have we got? We've got an allegory. We've got a picture of something with lots of details that tells us about something else. It's easy to see the correspondence, right? Okay, we've got one more. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 to 11.
haven't gone past verse 11, don't right now. You'll get a chance to in a minute. If you have, it's all right. given in verses 11 down through 21. Go ahead and read that if you haven't read it. king of Babylon and we have the king of Egypt involved, right? The first eagle is Babylon, the second eagle is Egypt. Now, what this is picturing is 597 when Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem, he carried off King Jehoiachin to Babylon and appointed his uncle, Zedekiah, to be his vassal king and stay and rule over the nation of Israel or Judah more accurately as his vassal. Okay. Now, Nebuchadnezzar said to Zedekiah, you can stay here, you run the show as long as you obey me, everything is going to be fine. You know, every year you got to fork up a certain number of pieces of gold, but other than that I'll let you alone. Zedekiah obeyed for a few years and then he started looking to Egypt for help and the Egyptians said we'll help you rebel against the Babylonians now the Babylonians didn't like that and they eventually came in in 588 and put the city under siege and in 586 the city fell and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and they took all the people to Babylon Okay, now there is enough information here that if you go through and study your Old Testament history and it all comes out of the Bible, you can put those pieces together. Okay? It's a little hard to do even with the illustration, I'm sorry, not even with the explanation, but all the information that's necessary to do that is there. Now, did you notice that in virtually all the allegories we looked at, 
you are given interpretive clues to tell you how to approach it and to let you know that it was an allegory. Okay? One of the reasons why you shouldn't use allegorical interpretation in portions of scripture just anywhere you want to is that very little of scripture is in allegorical form. And usually there's a really strong clue to tell you that something is an allegory. Okay? So while it is proper to interpret allegories as allegories, don't go around, you know, um, using this method and turning things that aren't allegories into allegories. You know, one of the church fathers took the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he said that the Good Samaritan was the Holy Spirit, and the donkey was, you know, the apostles, and the blood and wine that were poured on the guy's wounds was communion, and a bunch of goofy things like that, okay? Now, you all go, yuck, and rightly so, because you know what the story of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the Good Samaritan was supposed to do, right? It was supposed to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And it answers it by basically saying your neighbor is whomever you happen to come upon who is in need. And that's all that it's teaching. And it's not saying that if you happen to be walking down the road and you find somebody by the side of the road who just had a car accident, throw them in the back of your station wagon and take them to the liquor store. That's not what it's saying, right? Did I say that once before? Yeah. You tend to use illustrations over and over again. You know. um, it's not teaching you that that's the way to do medicine. It's just there to illustrate the point that your neighbor is whomever God happens to put in your path who is in need of your assistance. Okay? So, we want to avoid allegorizing things that aren't allegories. Okay, let's take a break. It's 20 minutes of. Let's start at 7.45, okay? Okay, folks, let's get settled down again. Let me ask a question. Are, are there any of you who did not get interpretation notes, parts one and two? Okay, how many didn't get part one? Raise your hands high. High. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, how many didn't get part two? Looks like the same folks. Okay. Um, I'll try to get some printed up for next week. Okay? Okay, I'll, I'll print an extra or two. Okay, I'm going to pass around a tenant sheet for hour two. Please go through and try to get these attendance sheets updated. And if you know if you forgot to sign your in yourself in for a previous week, please do it now. Okay, let's talk about predictive prophecy. This is a lot of material to get through, but let's see what we can do. All right. Some obvious but important statements about predictive prophecy. God can predict the future. Biblical predictions of the future should be taken at face value. 
Biblical prophecy is a kind of literature. It's a genre, just like other kinds of literature, and therefore there are certain rules that need to be applied when you interpret it. It should be interpreted, interpreted literally, which means, again, what we said earlier, according to conventions of the genre in which it is pre presented with attention to context. Now, finally, there's no justification for allegorizing or spiritualizing biblical prophecy just because it's prophecy. When you run into something in Scripture that is predicting the future, don't allegorize it or say it can't be intended to predict the future. It's intended to predict the future. So treat it at face value and uh, allow God to say what he's saying. Revelation? Like the book of Revelation. Yeah. But there's a whole lot of prophecy in Scripture beside that book. Okay. Now, some people avoid predictive prophecy, the topic of eschatology, intentionally because they say it's divisive to the church. Is it? Well, I think sometimes it is. But that's not because prophecy is unimportant or incomprehensible. It's because people disagree about it. Okay? Second answer. If God felt the need to include revelation about his plans for the future in Scripture, we're obligated to study and to find out what he's revealed and respond to it. You know, there, there, are, there are pastors, there are preachers, there are Bible teachers who say, I just won't deal with prophecy. And they are failing to fulfill their obligation to teach the whole counsel of God. It's wrong to avoid prophecy. Okay? Third answer, Scripture presents prophecy in a very positive light. It comforts us, it warns us, it motivates us, it instructs us in ways that we need to be instructed. Okay? So, I think prophecy is important and beneficial. Andrew. Well, I have to be mean to you, Andrew. In that context, the word prophecy is being used to mean preaching. Bob. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, one of the most powerful proofs of God's sovereignty is his ability to predict the future, and we've already seen it come true, right? There are lots of already fulfilled prophecies. That's one of the most powerful proofs, not only of God's sovereignty, but of the truth of his word, right? Great point, Bob. And it's also... It's also a point of attack by people that don't... People who don't want to take scripture seriously, but you can you can take them to scriptures to prophecies that are, have already been fulfilled, and they will say, "Well, those were written after the fact." Well, we now have proof that they were written before the fact. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written before the time of Christ, and that has been proved by unbelieving scholars, concern, contain many prophecies of Christ's ministry at His first coming. And they did come true in the way that they that they predicted they would. So, 
All right. Now, let's talk about the three basic views of eschatology. This is going to be really quick. We're going to cover this in detail in one of our courses later. The first view of eschatology is the amillennial view. Now, every view on eschatology contains this word millennial. Millennial, millennium is a Latin word which means a period of a thousand years. A millennial means no millennium. Okay? In this view, Christ came at, at the first coming. We live in the church age. One day, he's going to come back. That event will be the second coming and the rapture and the great white throne judgment all at essentially the same time. And following that event, God will create the new heavens and the new earth and we will move on into eternity. That's a little out of focus. Let me see if I can make that better. Okay? The second basic... No, it's, it's not. You're trying to be funny. Okay. The second view, if you ignore the title... Uh, you can't cover up things with a projection. <laughs> okay. The second view, as far as the sequence of events, is exactly the same. You see it? The difference is that the amillennial view, those who hold it, argue that during the church age, the world is becoming more and more sinful. Okay? And there's plenty of evidence, both in human history and in Scripture, that as we approach the end times, the world is going to get worse and worse and sin is going to become more rampant. Now, the post-millennial view is a view that became popular after the Reformation, and the people who held that view took the same sequence of events, but that they argued that the church, by its influence in the world, would reform the world and make human society better and better. Technology, science, all those things would bring peace and prosperity to the world. And after the world had gotten better and better and better and it was ready for Christ to return, it was all set up, he would come back. So the church was going to do the job of, and they, they called this bringing in the kingdom. And now we have some post-millennial hymns in our hymn book. If you read, I can't cite any of them off the top of my head now, but if you go through the hymn book, you'll find hymns that talk about Westerners um, civilizing the savages and cleaning up the world. Um, the Battle Hymn of the Republic is a millennial hymn picturing the church triumphantly cleaning up the world, but it was used in the Civil War. Post-millennialism was very popular in the time of the Civil War and the Victorian age. The First World War came along and was kind of a slap in the face of the people who held this view because it showed that the world wasn't getting worse, wasn't getting better and better, and the Second World War pretty much killed this view because people could not maintain the idea that the world was getting better and better. Strangely, though, it's having a revival now. Okay? This part of it is very difficult to justify from Scripture. 
the evidence of scripture is that things are going to get worse and worse before the Lord comes back. Okay, now the last view is much more complicated. Okay? Now notice that in the amillennial view and the postmillennial view, the second coming, the rapture, and the great white throne judgment all pretty much happen at the same time. Okay? In the premillennial view, the rapture happens, then there's a seven-year tribulation, then the second coming happens, then there's a thousand-year millennium, then the great white throne judgment happens, and then we move into the new heavens and new earth. Now let me explain where the terminology comes from. The premillennial view says that the second coming of Christ is before the millennium. Okay? The postmillennial view says that the second coming of Christ is after the millennium because they call this period in which the church is supposedly making the world better and better the millennium. Okay? That's where the titles come from. And the amillennial view says there is no millennium. There, there is not going to be a time when the world is getting better and better and better until we get into eternity. Okay? Andrew? Where does um, the tribulation fit in amillennialism? Uh, okay. Amillennialists recognize that Scripture says that times are going to get worse immediately before the second coming. Amillennialists do not believe in a literal seven-year tribulation generally, but they do believe that leading up to the return of Christ, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Postmillennialists spiritualize the concept of the tribulation. Often they put it back here, right after the death and resurrection of Christ, and they say that the description of the tribulation in Scripture refers to the persecution that the early church went through. Bob. What is the history of the premillennial? Okay. The premillennial position was the view of the early church until about 250 AD. Okay? Then, we're not exactly ha sure how it happened, but when the Romans institutionalized the Christian church and made it the state religion of Rome, they had a difficulty. The difficulty was and I can't get into all this now, but the difficulty was that the book of Daniel predicted that the Roman Empire would be the last evil empire to exist on earth before the kingdom of God was set up, before the millennium would be set up. And so what they did was they said, well, the church is the kingdom, okay? And they said there won't be any literal millennium. And early amillennialism was didn't really distinguish so much between this getting better and getting worse. It just said that the church was the kingdom. And that's where a lot of that imagery in the Roman Catholic Church of the Pope being a king comes from, things like that. Okay. Now what happened historically is that amillennialism dominated the thinking of the church until the time of the Reformation. And when the Reformation came and Martin Luther and Calvin and those others recovered a sound biblical doctrine of soteriology, how you get saved, they were so busy with defending that 
that they didn't take any time to address the question of whether Roman Catholic eschatology was correct. So the reformers just carried forward amillennial eschatology, basically in the form that the Roman Catholics had had it in. And then it was in the early 1800s that brethren, mostly brethren preachers, began to look at prophecy again and said, wait a minute, this is the correct view. Okay? I'm just curious what, uh, like what documentation or information we have to like know. Who held what, when? Well, like the, the early, well, I mean, obviously we're going to know what the Roman Catholics thought, what they believed in. I mean, because all the history that they had. You mean the first few centuries like of the church? The first few centuries, like they believed in three millennia. Because mm-hmm. I've never heard, I've never heard that. I've, I've heard that, that it came about in the early 1800s, like you said. Right. It, it's it's, it's commonly said that this is a new idea that nobody ever thought of until the 1800s. It's been demonstrated by studying the writings of the early church fathers in the first three centuries that they were premillennialists. Now, they didn't necessarily develop the question of where the rapture fell into this system, but they believed in a literal return of Christ to this earth after which he would reign on this fallen earth over the nation of Israel for a thousand years. And only at the end of that period of time would the great white throne judgment occur and this universe be replaced with a new one. Okay? Their understanding of premillennialism was probably not as precise as the modern understanding, but there, there's absolutely no doubt that the early church was premillennial. It's really been established beyond any doubt. It's common for those who hold this view to try to ignore that evidence. But it's there, and you know there are lots of books that have been written on it, and uh, it's really pretty clear. Becca, did you have a question? So when you hear the term post-trib, people who okay. believe that the rapture is after the tribulation, where does that fall okay. into your All right, good question. Okay, within premillennialism, there are several views regarding when the rapture occurs. Okay, the pre-mill, that's this. Pre-trib view is the one I've put up here. It says the rapture is at the beginning of the tribulation. There is a pre-mill mid-trib view that says the rapture is in the middle of the tribulation. There's a pre-mill pre-wrath view that says the rapture is a short time before the end of the tribulation, but not at the end. And then there's the pre-mill post-trib view that says the rapture and the second coming coincide. Right, and we'll, we'll deal with those in our course on eschatology. Now, let, let me go on a little bit, a little further, and let's see. I think I've covered this material already. The big difference between the pre-mill and the on-mill and post-mill views is that the latter treat this age as sort of a spiritualized non-literal millennium. They take the millennium of Revelation 20 and they put it before the second coming. And they take the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah's kingdom and his reign over the nation of Israel and they put it back here. Now what they generally do also is they will argue that the church has taken the place of Israel 
and again they put it back here. Right? The premillennial view sees Christ returning to establish a literal earthly kingdom that will last for a thousand years in which he will reign as king over Israel and as emperor over the entire planet. Okay? And generally, except for the post-trib view, it separates the rapture of the second coming and the great white throne. Bob? Well, okay. You anticipated my next slide. So let's go there. Okay? Great point. Why are there three different views? Well, the three views reflect different priorities at work in the interpretation of Scripture. We'll talk about this in detail. Okay? Um, to answer your question, the on-mill and post-mill views place priority on certain theological assumptions, whereas the pre-mill view places priority on literal interpretation. Okay? Those who hold the on-mill and post-mill views, if they're being candid with you, will admit, and many of them have, that if you interpret Scripture literally, you will end up with a pre-mill system. But they say there are certain portions of Scripture that you shouldn't interpret literally, and they have a reason for that. Their reason for saying that is that they are committed to the idea that the church has replaced Israel. And if the church has replaced Israel, then all those prophecies in the Old Testament of Messiah reigning over Israel, you know, where the lion will lay down with a lamb and the little kid will stick his hand in the snake's hole and the Gentiles will bring their offerings to Messiah in Jerusalem, they would say none of those can be literally true because when Israel rejected Messiah, the church took Israel's place. And since there is no future for Israel, those prophecies must be allegories or spiritual or metaphors or something. They're not literal. Okay? So, it really comes down to different priorities at work. And we'll see how this works out when we do our course on eschatology. Okay? Let's not try to settle the issue right now. And let me say that although I am strongly committed to the pre-mill view, that doesn't mean I don't respect those who hold the other views. I just disagree with them. Okay? Let's talk about some general guidelines for interpreting prophecy, and then we'll try a little bit. Okay? The first rule is the standard rule of interpretation. Follow normal, historical, literal, contextual interpretation. Okay, second, take words in their normal sense while recognizing the presence of figures and symbols. Again, this is nothing new. Third, recognize the focus on Messiah and his reign. Because when we're talking about the consummation of things, right? We're talking about God fulfilling the promises that he has made, but he hasn't yet fulfilled. And those all focus on Messiah coming to reign. Okay, recognize the principle of prophetic foreshortening. Okay, have you ever gone to a place where there are where there are ranges of mountains, and you stand and you look off at the mountains, and you see one mountain here, and you see another mountain there, and they look like they're right next to each other, but if you look at it on a map, in fact, they may be 20 or 30 miles apart. Okay. That illustration kind of shows the principle of prophetic foreshortening. A prophet may look into the future and speak of two events 
very close together in his discussion, when in fact they're separated far apart. Now the classic example of that is the quotation from, I think it's Isaiah 61, where the Lord says, um, Behold, the acceptable day of the Lord is here. And he goes through that quotation and he stops before the last phrase, which is the day of judgment of our God. Remember that one? Somebody can look it up for me. Um, what, what the Lord was doing when he didn't finish the quotation was he was recognizing that that prophecy in a single sentence pictured both his first coming and his much later second coming. Okay? And there are a number of prophecies that do that. That will talk about two events that in reality will be separated by thousands of years, but it will talk about them at the same time. So you need to keep in mind as you're studying prophecy that that happens sometimes, and it will often resolve difficulties. If anybody finds that passage, shout out for it. It's early in the book of Matthew. 61, the what verse? Is it in the beginning? I think, I think it may be the first verse of Isaiah 61. Is anybody going to help me here? Okay, good. Okay, well, let's read it. And you'll, you'll recognize the Lord quoted this. It's in Luke 4 and maybe in another place. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where he stopped. The next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because the day of vengeance of our God hasn't come yet. And it hadn't come during the ministry of Christ. Now, Isaiah is saying it's my job to proclaim both of these, or all of these things. But he doesn't distinguish between the separation in time of all the things he listed. Just because he lists them together doesn't mean they will happen at the same time. That's really what the principle of prophetic foreshortening states. Okay? All right. Next one. And we just did this in our in our discussion of allegory, didn't we? Look for God's built-in interpretations. Very often with prophecy, God will provide an angel who shows up, particularly in the book of Daniel, who will say, let me tell you the meaning of what you just saw. And it's very helpful. And it's not only helpful for understanding the particular passage that you're looking at, it's helpful because it kind of gives you a workshop on how to interpret prophecy. Okay? You see that this kind of symbol, like the symbol of a horn, represents kingly power or something like that. Well, when you run into other prophecies that aren't interpreted, it may well be that a horn there represents kingly power. So you can often apply the examples of in interpretation that you see in one passage to other passages where you're given the prophecy, but you're not given a divine interpretation. Does that make sense? Okay. In, very important. Compare parallel passages. Now, that's just the analogy of Scripture, right? We've got two passages that talk about the same thing, and one is more clear than the other. Or one includes some details and the other one includes other details. You can compare them. Sometimes you can put them together to get a more complete whole. Sometimes the clear one will help you to understand the less clear one. 
Okay. And the seventh one, take advantage of already fulfilled prophecies. Now, Bob brought this up earlier. Okay? The very fact that there are many prophecies that God <coughs> made in the past that have already been fulfilled literally is a very powerful reason to expect that other prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled will also be fulfilled literally. Again, you know, and I'm not trying to beat up on the people that I disagree with, but this principle argues very strongly for the premillennial system. Because the premillennial system is based upon the literal interpretation of prophecy. And if the prophecies about the coming of Jesus were fulfilled literally, then it's the smartest thing to do, at least on the surface, if you're not forced to do otherwise, to interpret the other prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled in a likewise literal manner. Okay? Charlie, were you going to ask something? Okay. All right. Let's look at a couple of passages. Let's have some fun now. Okay? Go to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, I want you to read Daniel's description of the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had. It starts in verse 29 and goes down to verse 35. And notice the introduction to verse 29 as you read. Daniel tells the king that his dream is prophetic, right? It couldn't be more clear. Thoughts came to you on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. Now, in verses 31 through 35, Daniel describes what the king saw. He doesn't yet tell you what it means. He sees this image, which has a head of gold, shoulders and arms made of silver, stomach and thighs made of bronze, and the rest of it is made of iron and a mixture of iron and clay in the feet. Okay? Weird statue. What the heck does that tell me? It doesn't really tell you anything until the interpretation is given to you. All right? So now... Read the interpretation starting with verse 36 down to verse 45.
read the explanation? Okay. Basically what Daniel tells us is that this statue represents a timeline that has been taken and stood up. Okay? You can think of it that way. The timeline, the sequence starts right here and it goes in this direction. Okay? The head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar. The shoulders and arms of silver represent a second empire. The waist and thighs of bronze represent a third empire. And the legs of iron and clay represent a fourth empire. Right? He says this is a sequence. He says that each one of these will displace what is before it. And then he says, once this thing has been completed, a stone cut out without hands is going to come in and pulverize this thing. Now, a stone cut out without hands is a figure for something. And by the way, it says it's going to become a great mountain. What do you think cut out without hands means? Any ideas? Okay, it's a rock. Yes? Okay, it's not something done by man, okay? Which leaves who? It leaves God, okay? Now it says, uh, let's see, inasmuch, verse 45, as you saw that the stone was cut out of the, out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. Now jump up to verse 44. And in the days of these kings, that's the kings of the fourth empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Now, in the picture of the timeline that's here, that goes down and it never stops. Okay? If you think of the timeline that I had up on the board before, what we've got starting in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, which is about 586 B.C. We've got the Babylonians. I'm just filling in from history, okay? We have the Medo-Persians. We have the Greeks. And we have the Romans. And then we have this eternal kingdom of God. which God says will never be destroyed, it will never end, and God will reign in it forever. Now, it's very easy to see what the prophecy is predicting. The difficulty comes in, well, how do we fit this in with what we know of world history? Because we say the Roman Empire disappeared around 300, 400 A.D. Okay, Bob's shaking his head. You know all the answers to this. That's all right. We will deal with that when we get to our course on eschatology. But just as a sneak preview, 
basically the way this is solved is by arguing that the Roman Empire will sort of go into hibernation for a while and then it will come back into existence. Okay? But, you know, what have we seen here? We've seen an example of prophecy. Okay? We've seen an interpretation of it. And we've seen that although God revealed prophecy in a dream and he used a symbolic way of doing it, right? Was there ever a statue really like that? No. The statue represents something concrete and literal. Now, if we had time, we'd look at Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel chapter 8 tells us the identity of these two empires. He actually names them the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. And the Greeks didn't really take over until about 330 to 320 B.C. Daniel revealed this prediction probably, actually probably before 586, somewhere around then, okay? So that was a couple hundred, 250 years ahead of time. So you can already see we've got fulfilled prophecy in the past. And you can see that although the future was revealed in a way that was symbolic, what was revealed was real. Okay? The statue stands for something. Okay? We could look at Daniel chapter 7, but I don't think we have enough time to do that. And so, what we're going to do instead is jump ahead very quickly to a different topic and try to cover this in the last few minutes we have. Okay? Let's talk briefly about the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. All right? How New Testament writers use Old Testament text is sometimes baffling. If you go to Matthew chapter 2, and read some of the things where it says that thus it might be fulfilled, um, for example, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And you look in the Old Testament, you can't find anything that said Jesus would be a Nazarene. Or, out of Egypt I called my son, a quote from Hosea, which is used to illustrate Christ and his family going down to Egypt and then coming back. You say, well, I read it in Hosea, and it seems to be talking about the Israelites and the Exodus, not Jesus fleeing to Egypt and coming back. These are sometimes difficult to understand. Now, we are tempted to apply the following syllogism, but it's flawed. Let me tell you the syllogism. No one but God understands the Old Testament better than the New Testament writers. That's got to be true, right? Okay, a syllogism is a sequence of premises that leads to a conclusion. Okay? You'll see it in a minute. Secondly, the New Testament authors quoted the Old Testament and they applied it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's true too, isn't it? That's what the doctrine of inspiration says. Therefore, we can examine how they interpreted it and applied scripture and then we can apply their methods to our own interpretation and, and application of, that should say, Old Testament scripture. Okay? These first two are true, but this one does not follow. Okay? 
It does not follow because we don't always understand what they're doing necessarily and for a number of other reasons. So you're saying that the, the New Testament authors understood the Old Testament better than the Old Testament authors? Mm-mm. I'm not saying that at all. No. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that of all the people on the earth, nobody understood it better than they did. At least all, of anybody who uses the Old Testament, the New Testament writers obviously understood it better than anybody else. Okay? Now, you may wonder why I'm pointing this out as flawed. Okay? The reason I'm pointing this argument out as flawed is that there seem to be cases where the Old Testament writers will allegorize Old Testament scriptures. Okay? I'm not convinced they do, but some people will say that they do. And they will say, well, if the New Testament writers could allegorize Old Testament scriptures, then I can do the same thing. Can you see how dangerous that would be? You mean New Testament writers allegorize Old Testament writers? Right. Isn't that what I said? No. I said it backwards? Okay. Old Testament writers okay. Okay, you caught me good. You want me to throw an eraser at you? That's very much what I tried not to do. Um, some people have used this syllogism to argue that we can allegorize the Old Testament because the New Testament writers allegorize the Old Testament. Okay? I don't think that it's valid to say that the New Testament writers allegorize the Old Testament. And I certainly think it's invalid to say since they did it, we can do it. Okay, that's basically throwing all of hermeneutics out the window. Now, the people who argue that way usually don't throw all of hermeneutics out the window. They just throw it out when they don't feel like interpreting literally. And you can see that that would be kind of dishonest. Okay? We can't apply their model because the New Testament writers had resources we don't have. Okay? We're not always exactly sure how they're using scripture. They may look like they're allegorizing it, but not be. They're not always quoting or alluding to the Old Testament when, they, when we think they are. Okay? There are some times in the New Testament when a New Testament writer will use terms or phrases from the Old Testament and it, that appear to come from the Old Testament. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person is quoting or alluding to the Old Testament. He just may have happened to use words that sound like Old Testament words. They had authority that we don't have. Okay, They were the agents of God in the process of inspiration. We are not. Okay, That was probably too quick to go over that. But I just wanted to run it by you. It's in the notes. Okay, let's look at a couple of interesting cases of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Several of these are in Matthew 2, as I mentioned. All right? Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. That's the quotation from Hosea. Okay, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt. Verse 15 says, And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. 
Now, when you read that on the surface and you go back and you look at Hosea, you say, Hosea was not a prediction of the Messiah going to Egypt, was it? It was, a, it was referring to a past event where God called his son, namely the people of Israel, out of Egypt in the Exodus. So how can Matthew apply that to the Lord Jesus and his family? Well, you can answer that in several ways. You can say, he misunderstood the Old Testament. He got it wrong. Okay? We don't like that one. I hope you don't like that one, because it means that there's a significant error in Scripture. Okay? The second way you can do it is you can say that he is allegorizing. Okay? I don't like that one, because I don't think he's allegorizing. The third way to do it is to say that the writer is establishing a correspondence between the Lord Jesus and the state of Israel. Or not the state of Israel, the people of Israel. He's saying that the Lord Jesus is the rightful representative of the people of Israel. He is just as much the Son of God as the people of Israel were. And there is a correspondence. And when he went to the cross, was he not representing the state of Israel or the people of Israel? Okay? So, I think that's the best explanation. By the way, that verb fulfilled does not necessarily mean this is the event that that Old, prophecy, that Old Testament prophecy predicted. Okay? It's a much more flexible term than that. It can mean that this thing here is a lot like that thing. This thing is analogous to that thing. Bob? Can't you also look at it from the point of view that uh, many things that happened in the history of Israel were types of Christ? Okay. Like Passover. Sure. That's, that's another way that people have dealt with it that there are things that happened in the history of Israel that seem to anticipate by divine de design things that Christ would go through. Okay, That's another way of dealing with it. Good. Okay. Matthew 2, 17 to 18. Herod kills the babies. And then Matthew quotes the passage from Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted because they were no more. That's talking about the death of Jewish children during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. How can we say that this event is a fulfillment of that past event? Okay. Well, again, that wasn't a prophecy. It was talking about something that had all already happened. But is there not a very close correspondence? We've got children in the chosen people being killed by Gentiles. Okay? So I think, I think it's a fulfillment by correspondence. It's not that that thing was a prediction and this is what it predicted. It's that this thing is like that thing. Now let's do one more and then we'll quit because we're short on time. Um, look at the very last verse in Matthew chapter 2. It says, And Jesus came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Notice the plural there. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
Now you should get a clue there when it says spoken by the prophets that something a little unusual is going on here. Either there was more than one prophet that made the same prediction using the same words, he will be called a Nazarene, or something else is going on. Is there any verse in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene? There isn't. You look for it and you won't find it. Okay? Now, people have tried to solve this by saying that the phrase Nazarene is a modern form of the word Nazarite. Remember the Nazarite vow? where an Israelite would cut his hair or let it grow, I can't remember which, and would choose not to drink wine or anything from the, from the uh, grapevine for a period of time as, as a way of expressing repentance or devotion to God or something like that. The problem is nothing in Christ's life makes him look like a Nazarite. Okay? Plus the word is Nazarene. It's not Nazarite. And you can't find that quotation. How do you deal with it? It's really very simple. Okay? Nazareth was a podunk town. Remember, one of the disciples is called, and another one says, he says, where's Jesus from? And he says, this is the prophet from Nazareth. And somebody says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Okay? Nazareth was a podunk town. Nazareth was like Cleveland. <laughs> Sorry. People always like to make fun of Cleveland. Okay. Or or um what's that town in Oklahoma we used to go to? Antlers, Oklahoma. Okay. <clears throat> the phrase he shall be called a Nazarene may be a figure of speech for saying he's gonna be a nobody from a nobody place. Okay? It's like saying he's from Cleveland. You know? Well, did the prophets predict that Jesus would be a nobody from a nobody place? They did. Okay? I think that's the explanation. But you can see that this term, thus it will be fulfilled, is not always used in the sense the prophet predicted this event, and this is the event which, which he was looking at. Sometimes there's some kind of a correspondence. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not throwing out direct predictive prophecy at all. All I'm do is sh doing is showing you that we need to be careful when we look at the way that New Testament writers use the Old Testament. There, there are a variety of ways in which they do it. And I think all of them are defensible and all of them communicate clearly if we pay attention to context and see what they're trying to say. Okay. Anybody have any questions? Gary? David, I don't think I'm clear on this. If the prophets did, did not actually use the word Nazarene, yeah. the then basically they, they <coughs> talked about a generic place. That well, no, they didn't even talk about a place. They, the prophets just said that Messiah was not going to be someone who was always impressive. Okay, obviously that's stated in Isaiah 53, right? Okay, so did Jesus, the fulfilled prophecy, pick the city that was No, I mean, well, uh, perhaps, perhaps. But, you know, it's not 
even it's not even really Nazareth that's the key to the thing. It's the fact that he comes from a no-name town. Okay, when Jesus showed up, he was not an impressive character. He was not particularly handsome. You know, he wasn't seven feet tall like Saul and broad shoulders. Shouldered. He was just kind of an ordinary guy as far as his appearance. And I think that that's what's being stated here. That the Old Testament prophets predicted that Jesus would not, you know, he wasn't going to be born in Jerusalem with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born in some hick town and his parents were poor and nobody in particular paid much attention to him. I think that's what it's saying. Okay? Other questions? Are you as tired as I am? Okay. Next week, I hope you'll come back. We will start Theology 2 and Theology 4. Um, theology 2 is going to be Theology proper, the doctrine of God, and then Christology, the specific doctrine of the person of Christ. Theology 4 is going to cover anthropology, which is a study of the biblical teaching on the nature of man, amartiology, which is a study of the nature and consequences of sin, and soteriology, which is a study of how God saves people and what its results are. Okay? These two go together nicely, and that's why I've set it up this way. Okay? We'll run for another ten weeks. We will start out with six weeks, and then I will be out of the country for four weeks, and we'll resume when I get back. Okay? I hope you all can come. If you know folks who are interested in participating, please encourage them to come and not worry about the fact that they missed the first two courses in the, in the, in the Bible Institute. They can still benefit and learn from these um, you, you all have a great advantage because you've had a foundation, but those courses will still work if you weren't here for the first two. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've given us. Please dismiss us with your protection as we go home. Please help us to think about the things that we have learned and to use what we've learned that we may handle your word more faithfully. I pray that you would enable us to be transformed by our encounter with your word and to apply it in our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.